0: Do we see you at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Beuzeau, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. And we're on. So welcome to the, I think we're at the third Ask Me Anything webinar on investing in regenerative agriculture and food. I see some new faces, I see some familiar faces, so for everyone, welcome and great that you're here. Um, please make sure you're muted when, um, when you're not talking, not asking your question. We had a number of people asking questions beforehand through email, so I will be going through them first. But first of all, I noticed the first time we did this, there were quite some questions on what is regenerative agriculture, um, what, how is it defined, etc. So I prepared a very brief Um, presentation for anybody that's already deep in the space. Sorry to go through that again. Uh, This won't be new to you, but for anybody that's completely new, I think it helps to set the stage of where we are. Um, So I will be sharing my screen um, for just a second. We'll take a few minutes and then we'll get straight into into the questions you have shared before. Obviously, there's a lot of space um, for people to ask questions. Uh, We had a few beforehand, but we have uh, definitely space. So just very briefly, um, this is the Ask Me Anything webinar. As you know, uh, we are on Thursday. For those who signed up through other channels, LinkedIn, etc., I'm Kun van and I'm the host of the podcast Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food, um, which we've been running since 2016. I've been very interested in region ag uh, since 2011, um, and basically I've been trying to follow the space and figuring out how to put money to work, uh, which makes sense for soil farmer investor and obviously ecosystem, uh, meaning all of us. So we've done a lot of interviews, some longer, some shorter. We're releasing now, actually, since the last uh, Ask Me Anything webinar, we're releasing one a week at the moment. Uh, Why? Very simply, there are too many interesting stories to tell. There are too many people, um, which is great. It's a great problem to have. Too many people building interesting things, fund managers, entrepreneurial farmers, investors, scientists. And we see the uptake also in terms of listening uh, numbers. And so we're trying to, to accommodate to that. There's just there's too much to, to share at the moment, so that's, uh, which is a great uh, and amazing problem to have. And thank you all for, for definitely for listening in and sharing the podcast. We see that happening a lot. Um, you can find it if you haven't subscribed yet on any of your favorite podcast app uh, or apps, uh, depending where you're listening. If you cannot find it, please let us know. But we are in most of the, uh, the main ones and you can see um, quite some uh, summaries, tech summaries, et cetera, on our website, which is investing in regenerative agriculture. Dot com. So, what is regenerative agriculture? Um, which is a question we obviously get asked a lot. So, it's a system of farming principles, and we get in, into that in a, in a second, and practices that increase biodiversity, enriches soils, improves watersheds, and enhances ecosystem services. This is just one of the many definitions. Uh, we're not going to spend an hour on if this is the right one or not, but I think it gives a good summary um, of um, at least what we're talking about. So, it's not a set of uh, tools it's not a recipe that you can apply to any type of land but it's it's a set of principles um, and just to very briefly to show the difference what is the difference when, between regenerative sustainable between organic etc um, i think it comes down to the question is it building soil or not um, any you can actually find organic um, farming operations that are very sustainable you can find organic farming sust- uh, operations that are quite extractive and you can find them that are regenerative so I would always like to ask the question, is it building soil or not? And I think most of agriculture in general at the moment is extractive. Some of it is sustainable and even smaller percentage of that is uh, regenerative. So I would it's not a certification or at least not yet. Maybe we never get there. Maybe we don't want to, separate <laughs> separate discussion. But I think this—the the central theme is, is it building soil or not? And I think that's a question you can ask if you're investing in this space. It's a question you can ask if you're buying from farmers. Uh, that discussion around soil, I think, this is the central piece, um, and it, it shows why it goes beyond sustainable. Just very briefly on the principles of regenag. again, here we can probably have six or seven in some cases, but I see these four being used very often, uh, which is covering the soil. Soil should never be, or at, at least amount possible, uh, uncovered. There should always be growing something. I like to compare it to a solar entrepreneur, or I think to, to see farmers as solar entrepreneurs meaning they try to convert as much sunlight as possible into something useful. And that could be sugars for the soil, it could be a crop for us, it could be a cover crop, etc. And that also shows that if a soil is bare and is basically naked for six months a year, you're losing the sunlight for six months a year. So you see um, regenerative farmers really going into a lot of effort to make sure they have as much surface as possible, as many leaves, as many different plants to cover the soil and to absorb that sunlight. That gets into the second point, complex rotations. In place and time, no monocultures or very little. Um, so basically on the same year, growing multiple crops in the same field and also year after year doing very complex rotations. Sometimes I've seen farmers doing 10, 15 uh, years, um, very different crops in the uh, basically a year after year. That obviously requires a lot of planning and and, and figuring out in terms of harvesting as well. Um, very limited tilling or no tilling and soil disturbance, um, which means the big trackers with the big uh, the big tilling uh, plowing equipment you see are something probably that, that they will park the first second. So the first, usually David Montgomery, one of the writers in the space, starts with, please leave the plow or stop plowing, which is, of course, a shock to most farmers because we've been taught that plowing is the basis of, uh, of a lot of things or at least the basis of the season. Then the fourth, there's a lot of discussion around it, but you see a lot of advanced regenerative farmers uh, integrating animals at some point in the rotation we discussed before. So there could be different types of animals, could be beef or livestock. It could be a lot of different ways. But you see at some point there, um, there's a role of animals to build soil. Um, there are very few examples where that's, that's not the case. doesn't mean it's not there. Um, but there seems to be a, a role of animals to, to build soil at least faster than, than without. And I think if you want to dive deeper there, obviously the, the podcast you can take, there are a lot of books um, these ones I find very interesting, Growing a Revolution um, of David Montgomery, which I mentioned before. Kiss the Ground, both the organization and the book. Honestly, they, they do a lot of good work. Dirt to Soil, very personal story of a farmer, Gabe Brown, on YouTube. Richard Perkins, definitely interesting. And there are many other uh, channels. And also Judith Swartz actually wrote some uh, some great books on um, on the topic. And with that, I think we did a good introduction to the topic and I would like to start with the first questions which actually came from Lenny um, and I will copy them into the chat um, you can also expand on them a bit Lenny if you want to but let me put them in the chat first so the first one wasn't really a question actually it was more a statement
1: let me uh...
0: Can you type them actually, because somehow my copy. Do you have them at hand Lenny? Because somehow my copy paste yes. is refusing yeah. to cooperate. Maybe, uh, maybe it was too much, to sorry. It, it was it was too much, yeah. So <laughs> your first question was too long, but I can summarize it. So you basically you yeah. were asking on the organic matter, as a good KPI, um, but your main point, I think there is, but please please elaborate on that. That there is not really a clear, um, let's say, a clear consensus yet of how to measure it, where to measure it, um, and you were basically asking for a group of expert or academia and professional backgrounds to come together and um, and compare these different projects. Is that correct, or you want to elaborate? exactly,
2: yeah. I mean, we always talk about organic matter content as a good KPI, but for me, it's really important to also analyze um, others, to have other KPI's to measure the impact of of generative agriculture. Um, Do we have social and environmental impact to measure um, the farm, generative farm? So I think it's, it's really important to work together and, and try to find out others' KPI to measure the impact of, 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 of different projects. Do
0: you want to learn how to invest? Or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course, or in the show notes description below. And just to give a bit of background, Lenny works at 123, which I interviewed a month and a half ago, maybe Oliver, uh, on large scale agroforestry projects, mostly in in central and middle uh, and South America. So there, obviously, I mean, soil health is is relevant, but social is just as everywhere, extremely relevant as well. Yeah, I, I don't, I mean. I wish I knew an easy answer for that. I think I hear um soil health and or the um, or soil organic matter as a good proxy for a lot of things, but definitely not the perfect um the perfect answer and in the impact investing space and just putting on my my other hats there, it's extremely difficult to measure anything social obviously um and there's not an easy answer to how do you Measure the positive impact beyond uh okay this forest is growing or the soil is growing of this this um this forest project, what is the positive impact in the larger community the larger watershed it's in the larger the interaction with the nearby city et cetera et cetera and I think you're actually your your impact report is is um doing a very interesting try in that and I know you're working very hard on it but you're not you're not satisfied with the results so far exactly. you want to do yeah. more yeah. So I think it would be good to, for other people, if, if we've seen examples, I think that's the best thing if for the investors in the space and the people in the space, especially in agroforestry, if you've seen examples of of good impact measurement and, and mm-hmm. metrics for maybe specifically agroforestry, it would be great if you can put that in the chat or reach out to me after I can send them to to Lenny. I don't have yeah. an easy answer for that. On on your second question, what what about the 10% a year which a lot of institutional investors return? We're talking about return here, financial return. A lot of institutional investors and you have a very large institutional investor on board are expecting. Um, I think from what I've seen now, it's definitely possible to do good returns. And and I'm saying good here with a reason um, in regenerative agriculture. But there is a debt to pay as well in the sense that we've been extractive for so long that the more you take out, obviously the earlier, the, the longer it takes for a system to, to recover or to, to become, let's say, very alive and, and for a soil to become very alive or a forest. If you buy a very degraded forest project and it takes a while before that comes back to life. So I think it's it depends what you need. If you need liquidity and return fast, um, in some cases you can, but it probably hurts the the, the speed of your regeneration and it probably hurts the, the length as well. If you don't have to take returns for 10 years. Obviously, you have a lot more flexibility uh, to do. And I, um, I remember one of the quotes of Sally Calhoun, uh, who was an investor I had on the podcast or is an investor a long time ago. And actually, she came back with, um, with Esther Park for the series with Transition Finance. And she said, I'm convinced we can do double-digit returns in regenerative agriculture. It's just that we've been using extractive agriculture for so long that we don't know how deep the, the J-curve is and we don't know how long it's going to be. So it, we have quite a big debt to pay in terms of so organic matter, in terms of social, in terms of many, many other places in, in our land use. And so in, maybe in some projects it's possible to do an easy 10%, but I mean, something has, I mean you're taking biomass out of a system because you have to pay for the returns, which means that it's, it's going to slow down something or maybe even hurt something on the long run. So it really depends on, on what we need. And I think there's a lot of education there needed to investors, and we as the space should, um, should probably do a lot of that. Like it takes time. It takes time to, de- to restore a degraded landscape. And there are returns in biomass, in non-financial return. There are, there are a lot of ways to, to do the accounting here, obviously. Um, and we should, but if somebody promises you a 20% return in regenerative agriculture, I would ask a lot of questions about that because it means something is losing out, I think. And um, so it's, it's, it's an education piece we we definitely need to do in terms of flexibility because there could be word, bad years in terms of time. And something that comes back in a lot of uh, discussions in, in the podcast, time, time, time. This takes time. Things can move very quickly, but the best things happen over over time. And then you had a, a final question. How do we go from small scale to large scale? And do we lose something when we do that? Basically, the scale up. I think that's the, the sum. I. I think we're at exactly that point. We see amazing small-scale examples in agroforestry. I mean, where where you're at in in grain operations, relatively big, but still small in in many other places. How do we get that to 10, 20, 50 times the scale? And I think it's more about repeatability than scalability. But are we losing something there? Do we need need new machinery? Are we losing the attention? If somebody does a one-hectare permaculture garden, obviously he or she has the attention to almost see every single plant every day if they wanted to. If you do a 20 hectare, you start to lose that, but you have a lot more impact in terms of water, in terms of climate, et cetera. So I think we're in exactly the tension. I don't know yet. My my feeling is we lose something when we scale and repeat. Um, but I haven't seen amazing data on that yet. I haven't seen centropic farming done on huge scale and to compare that to 10 smaller projects. I, I don't know. I think permaculture is at that space where they're starting to think about scale. I think we're we're at a lot of relatively small scale examples and we're now getting that, that phase of, okay, what means, what does it mean to do this 10 times or 20 times or a hundred times or maybe a hundred thousand times? And that's gonna be a discovery. So I, I, don't know, I don't know if the agroforestry space is maybe more developed because obviously you're involved in very big ones, um, but still small compared to some of your, your other players maybe. So do you feel like you're losing something when, when the scale happens, Lane? Sorry to put you on the spot. No.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the, our agroforestry systems are not so complex as um, the traditional ones from the small farmers, but it's always a balance between like complexity and like large scale um, agroforestry systems. You have to find a balance between yeah, complexity and, and large scale. Um, yeah.
0: No, absolutely. And just to, okay, I see another question. I will go back to some of the questions we had before, but I will try to answer a few in the chat now. Jan, um, you're asking on the current restraints to the that kind of design, w- which kind of design are you referring to? You're on, on mute. Sorry,
3: yeah, yeah I was, it was a, a comment on the question, actually. Like, what's the question is, how can we scale up? But, so I wonder, what is the difficulty there?
0: In terms of agroforestry um, systems. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. I think the difficulty, I I don't know the difficulty at the moment in terms of scaling up. What's the, what's your, um, your pain point? I mean, is the
3: limitation, is it real? Do we know that? Or is it an assumption that it's going to be hard?
2: I mean, we have to find markets for different products, so if we So we have to find a market, and it's always difficult to, to to sell different products. And I mean, for me, it's a lot about knowledge. We need to to know about a lot about each crop to be able to be resilient and to be profitable. So for me, it's a lot about knowledge, and it's not. It's difficult to to yeah, to find markets uh, for different uh, local products, um, local native trees in the agroforestry
0: systems. Yeah, but okay, aside from good. the cacao and, and the main product, or the, ca- the cash crop in the system, just between between buckets there. Yeah.
3: Because yeah. That, that changes your question quite a mm. bit already, yeah. I think. Mm.
0: It makes the, the... how I think it comes back to an interesting point that also keeps coming back, like how do you buy the whole rotation? In this case, obviously, it's not a rotation, it's the whole system. But it's it's sort of the same... How do we not just focus on the one type of grain or the one in this case, the cacao and the one? And, and there are, I mean, then Barber writes about it and, and obviously does it in his did, did it in his restaurant, so it's now closed. Um, but that's a, a strong question. Like, how do you buy the cover crops or how do you market uh, the other ones, the not fancy ones, um, in a in a system to a scale or to a, a size that you can market? Um, obviously it depends if you're selling directly to the end consumer or you have to go through a very complex Value chain like with cacao that ends up somewhere in a, a chocolate bar in uh, in North America or somewhere else. But how do we buy the whole rotation or the whole um, the, the, the crops that come out of a, a system um, that are marketable, obviously?
2: Yeah,
0: it's a very good question. Um, I see a comment of, of Wilhelmina CSAs don't need a 10% return. Obviously, uh, that's true. But at the moment, you change the ownership structure. Um, and return becomes a different thing because maybe the land doesn't need to exit or the system on top uh, just needs to pro- provide the, the food, in this case, as a CSA, then you get a whole different uh, discussion. In this case, it was specifically on a large institutional investors that start to become more interested in the space but have obviously different requirements and maybe they need to change. Probably they need to change partly and maybe the sector partly, like the, the truth might be somewhere in the middle. Um. Franzian, we need more people on the land, absolutely. I think, w- which is what we see in, in any advanced regenerative farm, it's, um, there's more hands needed, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And in many of these systems, they are uh, luckily better paid and, and sometimes well paid compared to the, the current agriculture system. And I will just put in the next set of questions. Um, and I will go back to the other ones. But I want to make sure we get to the ones that uh, Tom actually sent. I don't know if Tom's online because I cannot see everybody. Let me just quickly screen. I don't think he is. He asked some very specific questions, which I don't know if anybody in the audience knows, but is anybody tracking the growth of regenerative agriculture globally? Like how many hectares or acres under management? Is anybody measuring that? Uh, in terms of uh, maybe through satellite et cetera, because he 's involved with the project um, he he heads the epic institute in uh, in the u s and they are involved they're trying to figure out can we see how big it is at the moment, how big it could be or how wh- what is the growth year over year like what are we talking about? We hear a lot of buzz, but at the end of the day it's it 's about hectares and acres uh, that are changing and and, and, um, and i didn't i don 't know i they are looking at some satellite solutions which are quite costly um and I suggested i mean there's obviously more data on the on the organic um, agriculture sector, which is definitely not by all means regenerative, uh, but at least it shows some steps in some directions um, but also there there's very little data um, or at least for what I know um, and he, he also asked me, you can see the second question what or the third question what are uh, the, the countries best positioned or in, in poor position at the moment that are um, basically um, growing or are having uh, proper policies in place etc I don't know if anybody maybe Stephanie actually Stephanie raises on the call um, knows of anybody that is tracking uh, the growth of this sector uh, which would be great I mean I think as a sector we would all like to see like okay wow uh, Spain is really doing amazing things uh, because they, they grew the, the, the hectares on management we have some ideas of no till but as we all know that's, that's nearly not enough Ah, Stephanie is tracking it it's a long answer okay Maybe you can share it and I can share it in the, the follow up and we put it on the website where we, we host the uh, um, where we host it. Perfect. I will get I will get in touch with you, Stephanie. And uh, so that's Tom. Those were Tom's questions. I would just make sure we go back and I don't miss anyone. Um, indigenous yet land, Karen. That mirror the scale. What do you mean by mirror in this case? Just see if I see Karen?
3: Uh, sorry, it was just a, a comment in terms of uh, that, that scale up. Mm-hmm. Is that um, in and some and some landscapes you where well, you've had a, a a long history of indigenous peoples on their management systems. They're uh, depending upon the system. They're working within a, a regenerative uh, capacity. Over the last years, well, they well, several years, they've gone into more intensification. Um, and therefore you can, that's as near to scale up, I think, on the regenerative that we, we might have that will give us the level of insight. Um, and I think it also goes back, I don't know, uh, to the kind of monitoring. It's very interesting, it's very disverse, but it's also quite difficult to differentiate uh, from satellite imagery, unless you're looking at LIDAR and, and uh, high resolution stuff, to be able to differentiate kind of regenerative agriculture and kind of, you know, your agroforestry system to your secondary forest, to your kind of um, uh, semi-indigenous kind of traditional uh, land use system. So, and, and as long as you're kind of incorporating all of that complexity into it, it makes it very hard to know what your starting point was.
0: Yeah, uh, of course, I mean, in what is, what was the starting point what is time zero when we start to discover more and more we've been managed we as humanity have been managing a lot of landscapes for way longer than we thought and yes. we, we don't yeah, we don't know what wild and we're probably part of the wild part anyway we don't know lo- know what wild would look like does look like we don't have a comparison to um i don't know the or- the origin of the yeah t-, t zero is very difficult plus we have no i mean we don't have a uh, an easy way to distinguish this is regenerative or not, like you said. I mean, it's easy to track no-till probably from space because you can see it's a or not. Um, but yeah, it gets way more complex. But I'm I'm gonna follow up with Stephanie to see um, what they're tracking and how they're tracking it. Thank you for that. And um, I just wanna make sure I don't skip any other. Um, your book, yeah. I would definitely share, Rosalie, I would definitely share the book recommendations and the link. And I will, after this um, webinar, we put the, um, the recording online. And basically, I will go through all the comments and make sure they are all there, uh, plus some, uh, some extra interviews, et cetera, that, that link or that we have discussed or that, that might make sense. Um, Strip cropping, Willamina, which is actually a good point, because we have another question about that. Um, one second, Diego, because you're typing. And I'm going to first put another question of somebody that shared, actually Tim, that shared the question before. Um, How do you look at strip cropping for arable farms? The yield biodiversity impacts are positive. What is stopping implementation at scale? Um, I don't know. I think that's the first. uh, I haven't looked deep into strip cropping um, that, I mean, I think it it comes back to the same question, why is regenerative agriculture in general Um, not scaling everywhere so fast because you see... Uh, In many cases, very successful farmers doing it doesn't mean it's easy and their neighbors not. Like it always baffles me why uh, on the the left side of the fence line it's all green and on the right it's it's not. I think it's a very complex um, question. There's a lot of peer pressure. We all have created a system, an agriculture system, that's definitely not regenerative and uh, extractive. And for most farmers, they are, um, I wouldn't say stuck, but they're in a system that doesn't get them to the regenerative part at all. And I don't think we can blame it on them. I think we can blame it on all of us that uh, have played our part in that, either by buying the crop insurance, uh, the subsidies, et cetera, et cetera. But that's why I'm very interested in the transition finance piece. Like how do we get farmers? And it's not necessarily um, about the money, about the capital, but it's also about the support, the peer support. People need to see, because farmers have 40 harvests uh, um, usually in their their lifetime, and why would they gamble two or three or four maybe even five that's that's a lot to gamble especially with the margins uh, that we have at the moment so that's why the the peer support is so crucial the expert support independent economic uh, agronomic advice which is something soil capital is working on a lot like how do you make sure that the advisor that comes on the farm is not selling the same chemicals because obviously then the advisor will sell you more of the same chemicals which is logical that's his or her incentive But the best advisors you can get at the moment are Syngenta. Why? Because they're for free and they're the best paid by Syngenta. So there's a lot to unpack there. And it's not just, okay, it's more profitable. Um, Why is not everybody changing? And I think, um, I don't know all the details, obviously, on, on strip cropping. But I think it has to do with, like, it needs a 360 approach. It needs to, a farmer needs support from peers. A farmer needs support from independent experts. A farmer needs access to markets. We need all of us willing to buy produce during the transition, after the transition, and have a guarantee for that. Um, they need access to carbon markets, biodiversity markets, water markets, we've, we've talked about that before, and, and then access to capital. But I think it's the third in, in um, access to, to experts and, and peer support, access to markets is probably more important than access to capital. Um, and that if we get those systems in place, well, we can help a lot more farmers that want to go uh, through the transition and, and really partner with them, I think that's uh, that's key there as well and I think in the strip cropping that's that is the same as as many other uh, management changes because that's at the end what we're uh, what we're doing. Where does automation fit in transition towards regenerative agriculture? really good question I think there's a huge role for uh, a lot of the tech we see a lot of the fancy tech the the robots the the drones the the self driving tractors et cetera but always with an angle of how does it build soil or how does it f- enable farmers to build soil? And I would urge any investor in the space to always ask that question to any fancy ag tech company that you see, because you'll be surprised by the, by the uh, answer. Um, there are definitely interesting companies out there, but very few are really connected to the farming reality. Um, actually, there are very interesting companies out there because farmers started to build things um, because most farmers are very, um, let's say uh, very close to an inventor and, and they figure out a lot of direct seeders, harvesters, et cetera, because they need things and the big companies are building them. So I would actually go as close to the farmer as possible and see what's the real need there. But I think there's there's gonna be not only a lot more hands needed on the farm, like we said before, but also a lot of interesting approaches of technology that we we just haven't figured out yet. Both in agroforestry, actually, there's there's gonna be a lot of development in Syntropic. Maybe that answers some of the scale questions. Probably not all, as always, technology is a tool. Uh, just like finance. Um, so that's going to be, it's going to be very interesting to see, but always with the question, does it enable the farmer to build soil faster? And I think if yes, very interesting. If not, I I'm personally wouldn't be so interested in it. The labor shortages due to Corona, um, I hear very mixed stories there. I think that the large monoculture farms, um, I mean, I'm in Italy now, in the Netherlands, the issues are there. I think in the UK as well. Many European countries uh, are facing the labor shortages. If you look at the regenerative mixed farms, in many cases they have round, like they have a year-round work. So they have that very and they have a different relationship with their with their labor. So that's a different issue if you have, let's say, just a huge tomato operation and you need to harvest the tomatoes in those four or five weeks or whatever the time is you're gonna have a lot of issues this year. So there's gonna be a lot of tension I think this summer around labor shortages, pushing people or asking people more hands to come back to the farm, but it's also the type of work um, that we obviously didn't want to do anymore and that's why we have labor shortages and that's why we try to get illegal immigrants to to do it under horrible circumstances. So I think this summer we're gonna see, at least in Europe, a lot of hopefully attention for that And, and hopefully also the attention for the other side. Like if you have a regenerative mixed farm Uh, the labor part is very different um, or should be very different and should be much more uh, around the clock the whole year and not five, six weeks of uh, basically, I mean, we can say it's slavery, uh, tomato picking. Um, And I think we're going to see a lot of scandal um, articles, etc. We saw that last year, but this year, the spotlight is just going to be a lot stronger and a lot of approaches to try to get uh, people that lost their job uh, due to Corona to, uh, to obviously help out. And there's going to be tension there as well because we're not used to very, very hard physical labor which which this is in large monoculture, very obviously chemical intensive so it's, it's not a um, not at all a fun place obviously to to work and we're going to see that for the first time because it's going to be in the news and it's going to be in a lot of places that normal people uh, like in the supermarkets et etc so I think it's a huge huge thing, especially i don't know the u s situation that well, but I, I imagine it's not very different, um, yeah, the fragility of the food system. Um, became very apparent in this uh, this crisis, and it's not done yet. It will be um, over summer, as a lot of crops need to be harvested. The desire for shortened supply chains, absolutely, I see that exploding everywhere. Anybody that's selling directly to consumers um, will probably have witnessed that, with I have heard stories of 1,000 people on the waiting list, um, a boom that we've never seen in the shorter supply chain. At the same time, obviously, people that sell or sold directly to restaurants and and anything, hotels, et cetera, that that market disappeared overnight. So it it creates enormous tension for those uh, farmers and for the others. It creates a boom, basically, and and for the processors as well. The small scale butchers in the U.S. are already sold out until the end of the year. Um, The large scales are all closing down because of Corona. So there's this huge divide suddenly uh, between the markets. And um, it creates a situation we've never seen basically before. But for the for people that are selling, I say real food, real food to real people, this is a moment where they do three year growth plan in three weeks and and probably faster. And how much of that is going to stay? I don't know. But I've heard stories of people saying 10, 20 percent of this is already more than enough to sell out for a while. And so it's 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 creating a lot of um, opportunities and tension. I think that's the um, the main one there. Martin is asking a question. I'm doing a project now for Avebe, which is a large potato factory, I think in the Netherlands. Um, Have you seen any regenerative potatoes farmers? And yes. And if yes, how do they farm regeneratively? And the first part to the question is yes. And there's one in the Netherlands uh, called Jeroen Klompe, um, which I will put in the show notes after how they farm exactly regeneratively. I mean, there's, there's a tension there between tillage and potatoes because you have to plant them underneath the, the soil. How they do it exactly, I would refer to them uh, to, to explain their system. Um, I hear, I think you came, where is Martin? Or not, somebody unmuted. But anyway, so I will put it in the, in the show notes. So there's also there even with the harder crops because you, you have to somehow disturb the soil at least a bit. Uh, there's definitely work being done on onions and tomato, on uh, potatoes and and more. A question: um Francais is asking, when we talked about two years ago, maybe it's even more actually. Um, are investors interested in research, the practical, of course, and which is also a kind of investment? You're absolutely right. I think the short answer is um, yes. But it really depends how you ask. Um, I just released an interview with John Lundgren, who is or used to be one of the the main scientists of the USDA in the US, left there because of a lot of discussion around chemicals and insects that he wanted to publish and they didn't, and set up his own farm um, and a research facility. And he said, I'm surprised how many private individuals are supporting our research Um, while we run a commercial farm as well. So he said every academic first has to, in in the field of agriculture, first has to become a a farmer, and then we can talk about academia. And he is, I don't know exactly where he gets his uh, funding from, but there are a number of foundations supporting, there are private individuals, and he was surprised how, I wouldn't say easy, but how um, he could get um, a number of his research pieces, which are mostly focused on the profitability, the connection profitability and regen ag, um, how to get that funded. And these are multi-million dollar uh, projects. They're not huge, but they're also not small. Um, and he has get, got funded for quite a few, um, but both by uh, public programs, but also by private individuals. So there is some, at least in the US, very specific, obviously, but there's some interest, um, especially from let's say the foundation part or the investors that are uh, taking a full portfolio approach and are also including their grants in their approach. And, and one research piece on, Profitability in and regen egg in almonds, uh can take can, can change an element industry in, in California enormously. And maybe that research piece costs one and a half million. That's a lot of impact you can have with um, with a relatively small amount, obviously, relative for depending on your size of your wallet. So there is some interest, but it, it really depends um, how you structure it and how you ask, and obviously to whom and which connections. And he's obviously uh, well connected in, in the US, but it. He sounded surprised how, um, how he could actually fund some of the research that he used to be doing with public money in, in the USDA and now was doing on a on a commercial, his own commercial farm. Uh, Rosalie is asking, do I know any countries in Europe that are give that give subsidies to regenerative farming and or foresting? I don't know. I, I deliberately chose to not go too much in policy and subsidies so far because it's um, very context and country specific, which means that a lot of the listeners cannot um, relate to it. So I haven't been following it a lot. I know the EU is working on the farm to fork strategy and the biodiversity strategy, but I don't know the details of it. So I will will definitely put them in uh, in the show notes below as well. I don't know specific uh, countries that are actively supporting, uh, let's say, regenerative. I know some regions are supporting organic, but actively on soil, um, I think maybe Switzerland is doing something, but uh, I don't know if uh, that's it. And I see a response from Franzian. Thank you to Lenny. Uh, Wilhelmina has asked, we need a lot more pilots. Absolutely. I think there's an interesting spillover effect. Um, oh, she's actually not, I'll answer that when she's back. Um, The contact info, yes, I will send that to, you mean, I think of John Lundgren. Absolutely. I interviewed him and I will put uh, both the interview, the website of the foundation and the website of the farm. Um, Very interesting guy, very nice guy as well. Um, And interesting that he says, by far the most interesting things happening now are happening on um, forward thinking, very regenerative farms and farmers actually, way more advanced than all the university stuff I saw uh, as a researcher. So, it's actually, we, we need as researchers obviously get out of the university, get out of our pilot farms because they're not representing the reality. Um, and they're doing things, these farmers are doing things that we didn't believe, we don't believe that are possible in academia, which is very interesting. So, the, the movement is so advanced that the farmers are way more advanced than the academia, and the academia is trying to catch up. And obviously, it's very difficult because this type of research is, is very, very difficult because of very complex, holistic systems. Um, so, I, I really enjoyed that discussion because he was, yeah, he left. Part of academia for that because he couldn't um, he couldn't research the pieces he wanted to research and research the farmers so they basically did a big piece on on grain which is one of the only studies I could find on uh, profitability and, and regenerative agriculture and what they did is they found the most regenerative ones and compared them to their neighbors very simple but nobody had done that before and they now did the same or are doing the same in almonds and in rangelands so in, in livestock but I will put them uh, uh, in the so Wilmina mean just to uh, answer to, it's, it's not really a question, but we need a lot more pilots to show farmers the benefits of Regenegg. I think absolutely true. You see this very nice spillover effect. There's actually a study in the US on organic farming. When one organic farm starts in a community, you can see a number of years later that there are multiple around. Like You usually see this spillover, this oil, um, basically it's spreading. And that's because we need to see as humans that it works with the neighbor. We need to see that he or she doesn't fail. It uh, doesn't go bankrupt, et cetera. And I think every other pilot, and, and you see that I had a discussion with uh, the perennial fund who's setting up a transition finance facility for farmers, and they take that into account. So the, the farmers they pick, are they try to pick the ones that are good communicators as well, that are well-connected in their area and their neighborhood. They don't pick the, the super gurus, which sometimes are not the, the best communicators in the space, and maybe in their community are, are they seem to be the, the weirdos. So they try to pick the, the, just the group behind that, that are well connected, because if they are successful, they know it will spread through the community. So there's very, something very deliberate about where to put your energy uh, in, a, in a community. And, and it, it really makes a difference depending on which farm um, goes first, basically, which farmer goes first and how he or she is communicating about it. Uh Yono Proudfoot is asking uh, thank you to, uh, f- thank you by the way for for showing up Yono I was on Yono's uh, uh, live facebook um, i think it was 2 3 days ago it feels like ages but it was tuesday we had a very nice discussion on on egg, uh, also partly in, in south africa are there any stamps or <coughs> ooh, bless you are there any stamps stamps or um, certifications available for regenerative for at the moment no Um, I think there are two parts to that answer. One is that Patagonia and Dr. Bronner's and Rodeo in the US are working on the regenerative organic certification. Um, We can spend another hour on that if that's a good idea or not. Um, But I'm very happy they're doing it. Basically providing a plus uh, on top of organic. So you have to be certified organic. And they go a few steps beyond that in terms of looking at social and uh, regenerative. So literally soil building. They're testing it now, piloting it around the world. Not in Europe at the moment and the first products are coming out with that label. So the an- short answer is actually yes, there are a few products. Um, if that's the answer to everything, I don't know. There's the, 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 let's say the jury is still out. On a sort of a second route to that uh, question is that they're actually in terms of livestock and we've discussed that actually in, in uh, at the interview, um, there's some organizations taking a, a slightly different route to, to certification, they're not looking at the soil, they're not looking at if a farmer is regenerative uh, because of the principles. Uh, in this case, I'm going to interview next week uh, the founders of Standard Soil, which already win the prize for the best uh, name ever. Um, but they released a beef, um, a beef brand where they looked at birds. Why? Because a lot more people care about birds than care about soil at the moment. And they found a very interesting correlation between uh, ranchers that are very bird-friendly, so that a huge diversity of birds. And ranchers that were and are regenerative. And so they um, basically connected with a huge bird association in the U.S. that already was certifying farmers to be bird friendly. And basically they picked the most regenerative farmers out of there and started selling that beef as a very, very high premium one. So they, circum- they went around the question of how do we measure soil carbon? How do- they, they basically saw and see birds as a proxy and as a literally bird in a coal mine, obviously, because if there are no birds, the rancher cannot be regenerative. So that was an interesting. There's some people trying to, to go around that, uh, that question. Um, I hope that answers your... Oh, we went We have the same, uh, both in academia. Stephanie has some papers as well, um, which I will put in the show notes. Who has experience in the need for crop rotation? I think crop rotation is absolutely crucial or rotate, let's say complexity. Um, Lenny was already mentioned that before as well. Uh, complexity is very difficult to manage, obviously, but very crucial to, to soil. Uh, biodiversity doesn't make it easier to harvest. I mean, if you're planting two or three types of grain, they're not ready at the same time. So you need completely di- different harvest equipment, but that also brings the inventor um, um, basically in, in farmers that, that I know. Um, the rotation, I mean, I think you're asking for trouble if you're planting the same crop every year on the same piece of land uh, because you make it very, very easy for, for anything to to basically um, have a free dinner there. Can you list the trials that are going on in the show notes? Absolutely. I will uh, do that. Can I uh, break in on that? Yeah, of course.
1: Uh, because um, I have seen uh, some um, some studies that show that uh, if you leave out the crop rotation, you have better results for the crop, for crops. Results in profitability
0: uh, or in yield? The
1: profitability and health because um, the, the crop has to make um, a relationship with the, with the soil and that needs some time. So if you rotate your crops every year, you miss out of that uh, experience of that. Of the soil and plant uh, interaction, okay. and I've seen some studies. Uh, it's about uh, wheat that was uh, uh, kept on uh, for four years on the same uh, the same field, and next to it there was another field with crop rotation uh, in four years, and uh, the the wheat in the non uh, Um, non-rotated yeah (laughs) not rotated it was a lot better than uh on the other on the other side and i know someone who has his potatoes already for some 10 years on the same uh, the same field and uh, it's very profitable so maybe that's an idea to yeah look at
0: no absolutely i think it there's first of all there's a lot to discover i don't know many examples of long rotations uh, of non-long non-rotations, but that doesn't mean it's not possible or not in I mean in a context-specific or a site-specific. Would be great if you can share the uh, the papers on that, so I can uh, I can put them in the show notes. You can also email me on that. Don't, you don't have to put it in the uh, in the show notes. Oh, oh, so in the, find, uh,
1: the that would be great. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then let's see. Uh, I will definitely put that. I see Lenny responding to Francian. and then we ex- actually. It's a very specific question from Danielle, who asked, um, I don't know if anybody knows that I'm looking for specific funds to invest in Massachusetts in the U.S. I thought it was the best place to ask it because we have a lot of people on the call, especially in managed grazing of cattle. So if anybody knows anything about that, think about it, but definitely let me know, just, uh, ping me an email. Um, and I will, I can get it in the show notes and send it to him as well. Um, With that, I reached the end of the questions that were shared before. So I'm very happy to open it up for anybody that either wants to type or um, unmute uh, themselves to, to ask something. And if not, oh. Ah, yeah, sorry, Diego, you're absolutely right. You were typing before, and then I was coming back to that. Let me see. Ah, there we are. What do you think about the efficient use of agrochemicals? Recommended by the USDA, not having the certification. How to know what the acceptable uses of fossil-based inputs? Um that's a very difficult question. I, I think, I mean, what the acceptable use is, I think that's a, a social question we need to ask society in general. Um, I think what I see from the most advanced farmers I know is that they're going either, let's say, on a journey to zero, not definitely not overnight, because it obviously hurts your, your yields. Obviously, it really depends on the crop, where you are, etc. But if you have been um, using a lot of fossil-based inputs for a long time, you go cold turkey, um, you might be into some shocks. I see a lot of people at the end wanting to phase out everything um, for different reasons. I mean, we see more and more research coming out in terms of the health impact and uh, that obviously the input companies are claiming that's not there. Um, but actually we see a lot of research coming out now and, and don't be surprised over the next years to see a lot more of that, that it's not as safe as they claim. What's the optimal use? Um, I don't know. It depends again on the, on the place I see um, discussing with Soil Capital mostly. Nicolas uh, was on the webinar recent, or was on the podcast recently. Most farmers, very conventional farmers, overuse a lot, and they are seeing mostly 30 plus percent. Meaning that if you follow your non, uh, if you follow your non-independent agronomic advisor, who's probably selling this stuff, uh, you're probably overusing your cocktail anyway. Even if you don't, if you're completely not interested in your uh, in regenerative agriculture, soil, etc. So there's a lot of space already there to reduce a lot, if you optimize for your location, et cetera. Um, then you go to the the, the John Lindhans of this this world where they say whatever the the input companies have been selling, it's absolute nonsense. Uh, you can do without, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. The the grain t- trials they did, the non the the, the farmers that use insecticides had ten times more pests in their um, in their fields than the non ones. So you see very different. Like, again, we're in a phase where we see a lot of claims that, it's, that most of them sound too good to be true. Maybe some are, maybe some are not. Um, but you see a lot of different ways. I think all of these farmers are pushing for a very input light model. Some cases you might need some inputs for a while, but they're all in the transition that maybe in 10 or 15 years, um, a lot of the, at least the chemical fossil fuel based inputs are no longer necessary. Um, and then it depends on the consumer, how fast they can go. Like if we want as consumers to go really fast, farmers can go really fast. If we can't and we don't want to pay or invest or uh, spend money on that, then uh, we're pushing them to just do it on the margins they have, uh, which means the transition goes slower. Um, So acceptable, it really depends. I think there's a lot of push for uh, um, chemical-free products, which I don't think is going to go away, especially in the health crisis we're in now. I mean, there's going to be a lot more attention for whatever we're spraying. And we, I say we, because we are all responsible for that. It's not something we, we pushed on farmers and uh, it's not something we asked for, but it's something that's part of the system we created. So I don't know how efficient you can get and how much of the, even the efficient use of chemicals is still hurting the soil life, which is something you're trying to rebuild as an regenerative farmer. Probably in the transition, it can still play a role. But I would be very interested to see, okay, what, what what is your long-term 5, 10, 15-year plan and how can you get off very expensive inputs? Let's not forget most of the profit margin differences with a lot of these farmers come partly from that selling directly and partly from that inputs are very expensive and, and coming from very far, very resource intensive as well, as you pointed out with your fossil fuel-based ones. What's my position on? Um, The whole system CO2 balance, carbon sequestration in origin and carbon emission, like crops and meat traveling from South South America to Asia, that's a very good question. I think the shipping around the world, I mean, traveling depends how you travel, obviously, and how intense that is. Um, Flying crops around the world seems to be, um, I mean, not very possible at the moment, but... um, makes something very 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 energy intensive and i think that comes back to the input question as well like how much input was necessary to get that calorie on your plate Um, and how much of that simply wasn't um, like how much can we spend on that and probably there's going to be a lot of pressure from a lot of sectors to greatly reduce the amount of emissions and input they use uh, and thus the emissions and food and agriculture shipping avocados around the world because we want that there's going to be a lot of discussion around that i think there's obviously a lot of potential for carbon sequestration we're not there yet in terms of many uh, measurement in many cases and um, but the potential is there but i think the potential is, is, is maybe even bigger in water storage or maybe even bigger in biodiversity um we focus a lot on carbon and the story is a lot bigger than carbon and uh, but it's easy to it's easy to communicate easy to measure easy to it should be easy to measure it's not but um the question if South America can stay the big production hub of, um, of soy, meat, etc., I think has to do with a lot of different factors. There's a very interesting report um, came out of, I'm thinking, Planet Tracker. Um, I interviewed Mark and Matt, and they looked very simply at Argentina and Brazil. Can they actually, they need a lot of dollars to serve their, uh, their loans they have with the IMF and others. They mostly paid through that, through soy. The soy industry is like this. The soil underneath the soy industry is suffering a lot. So, where's that breaking point? Where if that industry collapses, can Brazil still pay for its foreign debt? Things like that. I think you need to look at the holistic picture here. Apart from the fact, the question: Do we want to transport meat from South America, very intensive meat or non-intensive meat, to to Asia or not? And obviously, there's a discussion on diet change um, there as well. Like how much animal protein can can we actually sustain if we would farm regeneratively everywhere, which is, I don't think a study anybody has done yet. We've done it. There's a study on, on, um, on Europe, actually, what kind of diet change is needed plus a switch to regenerative agriculture by a French Institute, which is very interesting. And I will really try to remember to put that in the, uh, in the show notes. Um, so that it's, it's not an easy answer. And I don't have a clear, a clear answer on that. I'm just going down because I see six new messages and we have four minutes. So that's going to be interesting. Um, Andrew, thank you for sharing some. I will make sure to send that to Daniel. Uh, Trudy, what's your understanding of the potential of region ag for mitigating climate change? Um, If you have to believe some of the headlines, it's going to change everything overnight, which I always find very hard to believe. My recent answer to that question is, I think, whether we like it or not, it has to be part of it and um, even if tomorrow we would stop um releasing all carbon uh, because we switched to renewable energy and we did a lot of other things we still have an endless amount of ecosystems to restore an endless amount of hectares and land that are um as somebody of the uh, savory institute said in, in the nordics um underperforming landscapes or underperforming ecosystems which is, i think is a very nice term so even if you don't believe in climate change um, i don't think it's a belief I, even if you if you don't do it for that and if you if you don't do it for nutrient density etc i don't think we can escape the fact that agriculture has to fundamentally change in land use and forestry and we'll have to grow a lot more life biomass food um, oils and fibers in a much more regenerative way because we're literally running out of soil and we're seriously dista- destabilizing the, the global climate because of land use change and so if we like it, on, it it's part of a much bigger picture than just the carbon discussion, I think. Um, so I'm not too worried about that. Even if climate change would go away tomorrow, we, we invent the best fusion re- reactor every, uh, ever ever invented, we would still had to restore 2 billion acres of degraded land. We still had to figure out a way to feed ourselves nutritionally, which we're not at the moment. So I think that's the, the potential is enormous, but I wouldn't only hinge it on that because if that happens if we go into a period of global cooling suddenly for whatever reason we would lose our only argument we have for this which i don't think is a very strong basis to build a global movement on um and what are good ways to make a region ag more common mainstream how to attract more farmers and to make conventional farms i think to the transition here i talked about it briefly and i think the the Not to do a teaser, but there's a great interview coming up with the Perennial Fund where we talk about that. I think to make it mainstream, nutrient density is going to be very important. Measuring nutrient density and showing that the the connection, healthy soil, healthy produce, healthy gut system, um, and healthy people, which is not there yet, but coming and and very interesting, scary, and (laughs) revolutionary at the same time. Um, so that part of it, more movies like The Biggest Little Farm, more and uh, more farmers in general that are in their context doing this. I think that's the because then we can see touch, you can see it locally. You know it's not something that is done a thousand miles away, but actually done in your neighborhood. And, and for consumers to ask a lot more questions, is your farmer in your local farmers market that you really think is amazing, is he or she actually building soil? And, and can you actually verify and can you show and can you see that, et cetera? Um, just to be mindful of time, I see people logging off. Thank you so much for joining. I will answer a few more questions in the, in the next couple of minutes, but if you have to run and, and jump off, uh, thank you so much for sharing, asking questions, and, but I will stay on for a few more minutes to, uh, to, go, through the last, to go through the last questions. Thank you. Um, will is asking, does using natural mind fertilizers such as rock and potassium chloride violate the spirit of regen egg? I don't know. I really, I've known the terms, but I'm I'm not a farmer, and I would defer these questions to to the experts. What do you think the demand for trade finance focused on the most ethical regenerative products, potentially emissions offsets included? Will another will is asking. Um, Can you? I see you're still on. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Will.
4: Hey guys. Hi, sorry. um, I've got a four-year-old behind me watching (laughs) Netflix. If you get some strange interference, that'll be her. Um, I've just been talking to some people. I have a finance background, and I'm focusing my attention on building a fintech that enables transition finance at scale. I had some contact with some people recently. I'm trying to help with, with their trade finance proposition. And I said to them, well, why not make it? very ESG, which was the term I used for them, but impact focused and enable those producers that are doing the best, have much more efficient working capital. Um, You can bring in investors who want to invest their cash safely, but in good causes. So instead of seeking it in a money market fund, they put it in something with much more meaning and provide much greater growth potential in a relatively risk-free way to the best producers. Um, there's also the issue, like you said, you might have a great product produced in an appropriate country. Uh, someone from Ikea was saying on a different call earlier today, but then you've got the emissions to bring it to where you are. So it is net net the best way to do it. Um, the question is, do we think there's a, an interesting product there to go to the groups that are focused on Regen or regenerative organic, for example, in the U S and say, how can we help bring cheaper, more farmer-friendly finance to those sectors? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm about to try and help them find it. But I wanted to put that to the group. I know there's some really smart, knowledgeable people on your calls, so including yourself. I just wanted to put it out there.
0: I think in, any farmer-focused finance in terms of transition, transition finance is something um something where we need more of. There's very little um appropriate finance available for farmers that want to transition, both in the global south and the global north. And um, we're we're just trying, we're just starting to figure out that, that that's a thing. Um, and we need to focus on that more. Um, so I think the answer, short answer is yes, but obviously farmer focused, the flexible not putting more depth on and um, the farmers, but I think in terms of crops that that being shipped over the world i mean we can um say a lot of things about seasonality and regionality but we're going to drink coffee and eat chocolate for a while and many other crops i'm just naming two that that get shipped a lot um and there are huge opportunities there for and huge necessities if you look at their value chain and if you look at the coming climate stress for those crops over the next 10-15 years there's there's an endless amount needed to um, to diversify, to make the systems more complex and more resilient. So I think um, the the first things that come to mind are um, actually Lenny of One Two Three, who's on the call, but also Root Capital um, and the Starbucks of this world, obviously, and anybody that has been, um, let's say, buying um, commodities um, in a let's say a slightly more ethical way that starts to pay attention to soil. Um, could be potentially interested in that if trade finance, and I don't I have no background in that, is a, a big issue there. I know for many cooperatives it, it, it is because they're waiting for money, currencies, et cetera, et cetera. Anything that can point more of that money towards regenerating soil, I think, is. Um, and then obviously the transport in the most sustainable way possible, but I don't think we're going to escape the fact that we're going to keep drinking coffee for a while and tea, by, by the way. But I would say, yeah, that large commodity buyers that are looking around um the nestle's uh, um ferrero etc of this world um could potentially be interesting how far their connection is to the to the ground you'd be surprised how many in between steps there are at the moment in many of these supply chains they're very very long yeah
4: with a very with one or two powerful connections in the middle
0: Thank you. yeah so um, it's not any it's not an easy feat i We have an interview coming up, actually, in a few weeks. I I recorded it yesterday on large commodity supply chains and and the work on the ground there. So that might be interesting. Uh, I'm I'm doing teasers constantly. of interviews coming up. Sorry for that. But they're they're actually quite exciting. Question for the group, Lenny, and then we're really going to wrap up. Um, Do you have any recommendations of good methodologies of uh, assessing the environmental and social impact? I will share. I might have already done it with you, but I, I will definitely put it in the show notes some of the work we're doing at Tonic. Um, which is one of the other hats I wear um, and yeah, more than uh, so, let's say more than soil organic matter. So I think there, there should be, there could be some interesting reading material there. And then I think we reach the end of the questions. So I want to thank everybody that stayed on for another five minutes so much. I will be obviously releasing this recording and as many of the show notes as I can possibly imagine. Uh, plus probably I missed some things, but definitely email me when, uh, when I do. Um, And thank you so much and see you at the next one.